Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Rosanna Capeller. She's the president and CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Rome Therapeutics. Rome aims to discover and develop drugs based on the emerging science in what is sometimes called the repeatome. These are long repeat stretches of DNA that scientists, until very recently, didn't know much about and still have a lot to learn with regard to its function. Rome made its official debut in April with a $50 million Series A financing from GV, Arch Venture Partners, and Partners Innovation Fund. The stated plan is to interrogate this uncharted territory to look for new targets to treat cancer and autoimmune disease. Rosanna was born and raised in Rio de Janeiro and went to medical school there before coming to the Boston area to do her PhD in molecular and cell biology. She got in early at Millennium Pharmaceuticals, was there during its rise to prominence in the first genomics boom, and then took on increasing roles of responsibility at a couple of startups, Aileron Therapeutics and Nimbus Therapeutics. She has serious science and technology chops and is now learning to adjust to the new role of being a CEO. Rosanna is a warm person and has a wonderful laugh, which you'll hear from the start. This is an enjoyable conversation with a consummate scientific entrepreneur. Now, before we get started, are you a regular listener, a real fan of the Long Run Podcast? Maybe you're trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with a high-powered crowd of entrepreneurs and venture investors. These are the people who listen to the long run. My business representative, Stephanie Barnes, can tell you about sponsorship opportunities of this show and how to raise awareness in this targeted group of people. Tell me about your company and why it's a good fit as a sponsor of this show in a brief email, luke at timmermanreport.com. Now, please join me and Rosanna Capeller on the long run. Rosanna Capeller, President and CEO of Rome Therapeutics, welcome to the long run. Thank you very much, Luke. So, Rosanna, before we get started, uh, with, with a name like Rome Therapeutics, I wondered, you know, do you have some kind of inside jokes at your company about like, when in Rome... <laughs> yes, we do, but uh, yeah, we keep we keep these jokes uh, to a minimum. But we like to say that Rome was not built in a day, and that all roads lead to Rome. I I figured as much. Okay, yes. but uh, the the name so, itself, I mean, all kidding aside, it does have a, a a meaning. It's a play off of repeat ohm, right? Which is what that your, is correct. Your science is all about, and this is about finding. Um, optimal targets for drug discovery in this, you know, so-called once upon a time junk DNA or the dark matter of the genome, finding those spots that actually are, are not junk and are actually pretty important. Um, so we'll, that is correct. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that uh, later in the show. I want to nerd out on some of the science with you. Uh, but just to get started, I'd like to for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, so w- where do you uh, come from originally? Uh, I was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and then I came to the States uh, in the late 80s after I finished medical school in Rio de Janeiro, and I joined the Lucantley Lab for my PhD here uh, in Boston. Okay, let's let's get to that in a second. Uh, Rio de Janeiro. Yeah. Uh, yes. What, what, uh, what uh, did your mom and dad do? Oh, uh, my father actually ran a media company. 
So um, my family was in media, uh, magazines, and radio and TV. So no doctors. I was sort of the black sheep of the family that I didn't want to go into the family business. And my mom was a homemaker. And what about siblings? Uh, I'm one of five. I'm the oldest. Uh, We are four girls and one boy. My parents tried really hard for the boy, about 15 years. That's the difference in age between me and my brother. And um, yeah, and all of them are into more uh, business-oriented careers. Huh, huh. Now, Rio de Janeiro, my picture of it, I've not actually been there, but, you know, it's this cosmopolitan place, like beautiful. Uh, What what was it like for you, the environment there and, and schooling as well? I loved it. I loved Rio. You know, it's for me, it still is the most beautiful city in the world. You know, uh, the nature of Rio de Janeiro is unparalleled. And growing up there, I think I was very privileged to be able to partake on that. And um, school was, I mean, I think I got got very good education there. I went to private school uh, during sort of grade school and high school. And then in Brazil, it's a little bit different than here in the United States, where the best schools are the state and federal schools. So uh, when I went to medical school, I went to the state school of Rio de Janeiro, which was basically the top medical school in Rio at the time. And But I also had the opportunity to travel abroad quite a bit. So I spent many summers at the Weizmann Institute in Israel uh, during medical school. So that's where I got sort of my appetite for science. Well, how did you first end up deciding to go to medical school? What was your thought in those days that you would want to become? So it, it's very interesting because when I was younger, I, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. You know, I was one of these weird kids that went around and hunted bugs and figured out their biology. You know, the one that took the knife to try to dissect a frog in my bathroom, you know, this kind of stuff. So I always knew that I was very interested in science, but not not directly in medicine. And what happened is when I was 15 years old, I started investigating what would take me to do a PhD abroad. And one of the things I heard from some people is that it was very difficult uh, to get into grad school abroad if you didn't have a very strong education. And the best education I could get was through medical school. And I said, okay, that's what I have to do. I'll go to medical school. But I have to say that was probably the best decision of my life because I learned um, the other side, you know, uh, basically to take care of patients, understand their stories, uh, think about patients, not just as a disease, but as human beings, take a more holistic approach and how important it is to find better treatments or better ways to improve the quality of life to a lot of these patients. So for me, at the end of the day, it was an amazing journey that I don't think I would have taken Otherwise, I mean, and, I was but, advised to do that. But so you uh, you do this with an eye toward eventually becoming a, a scientist. Correct. So you, you you didn't do one of these combined MD PhD programs no. where you get in and out in five years. Uh, th- no. th- this <laughs> is like you did them in back to back: the medical school first, and then the PhD. Correct. Uh, six years of medical school in Brazil, and then another six years of grad school. That's a lot yeah. of long, hard work. 12 years, yes. But I was—I got into medical school when I was 17. So I was in grad school when I was 24. 
it worked out okay. And and the thing is, the, one of the reasons that took me six years in grad school is because I had two children while I was in grad school. So I had my first child when I was a third-year grad student, and I defended my thesis seven months pregnant of my second child. Well, okay, grad school, this is now at Tufts. That's at Tufts, yes. Okay, well, let's back up just a bit. Uh, yeah. what, uh, what drew you to do your your graduate school, your PhD in molecular and cell biology, right, at Tufts? So um, many things. I mean, the, the one of the things is that I was really attracted into joining that particular department because uh, of Luke Cantley, who was a very young scientist at the time. I was really interested in the field of research that he was doing. So that's one of the reasons that I applied for that particular uh, department. This would have been late 80s, early 90s. Uh, what was going on in the field that, that really, you know, got you excited as a graduate student? Signal transduction. That was the beginning of signal transduction, uh, which right now I don't even know what name people give uh, to that. But uh, I think that is um, systems biology. But at that time is when we started understanding how signals, you know, from outside of the cell uh, transmitted into inside of the cell. So, for example, uh, folks knew that there were all these receptors, like the insulin receptor, and they knew when insulin bound to the insulin receptor, something happened. But they really didn't understand how that was transmitted uh, to the nucleus. You know, how did that induce the expression of certain genes? And so remember, this is in the dark ages, pre-genome. We didn't know much about anything. And I was fascinated about this idea of understanding how there was this communication, this intracellular communication, and also how cells communicated with each other. You know, we are multicellular organism. How does that happen? So that's what drove me to join his lab. And he, this was in the very beginning of the, of the PI3 kinase field. So, for example, in my work, we showed that the insulin activated PI3 kinase, so that became a very important piece of the whole field and um and yeah that that was the reason and and i have to say that was one of the was a fantastic journey while i was in his lab i learned a lot this is uh yeah as you say i mean early days uh, of biology when when we look back now (laughs) we 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 can't imagine i mean how how many questions were still open and unanswered um there's still plenty more but um how did you think about your career journey in those years? Were you thinking maybe you'd become a professor or or that you'd go to industry or how did that uh, shift in in how did you think about yeah. your where you wanted to go? So going back to uh, how I started my career, so basically going first into medical school and really discovering you know the importance of creating new medicines for patients. So what I really wanted out of my scientific career was to bridge that gap, correct? The bench to the bad side, which right now everybody talks about it, but you can imagine 30, 35 years ago was not common. Um, When I started graduate school is when a lot of the biotech companies were coming up, the Genentech, Biogen, et cetera. And I got fascinated by that because I I didn't really want to go to big pharma, but I really wanted to join sort of the biotech movement because I saw that uh, they were better positioned to bridge the 
what was going on in in the academic labs with what was going on in pharma, and that would be the fastest way to get new drugs to patients. So I was very interested from a very early age to join uh, biotechs. And I used to say that, that I was not interested in becoming a PI and that um, and that for me, my career path was going to be in biopharma. And I had a great role model. Uh, that was Vicky Sato. She's Luke Cantley's wife. Yeah. And Vicky at the time was at Biogen. So she was sort of the person I looked up to and she was my role model at the time. How did you get to meet her? Uh, she was Lou's wife. Okay, and Lou was Lou was my PhD advisor. Lou Cantley. Was he was my at PhD. Tufts in those days. Okay, uh, that's why you, you oh, when you asked me why I applied for that department was because of him. Okay, and the work that he was doing on pietri kinase. They had just published the first paper on pietri kinase. So now this is um, you're in Boston in the Tufts uh, community. Uh, just across the river, Harvard, MIT, there's there's stuff going on at biotech, which you're getting exposed to through, through Lou and, and Vicky. Uh, so that um, and you saw like there's other companies, too. <laughs> there's Genzyme. Uh, there's another yes. way of, of doing science. Correct. And then don't forget Millennium. So Millennium was founded in 1993 when I was just finishing my PhD. So I was actually quite interested in Millennium Pharmaceuticals. So so let me um, take a step back. So I got into Lou's lab in 88. Uh, that was at Tufts. In 90 or 91, I can't remember exactly the year, we moved to Harvard. So Lou became a professor at Harvard. So I moved with him to Harvard. My PhD is from Tufts, but I moved with Lou. And... Um, and then I went from, when I finished my PhD, I just moved a couple of blocks up the road to the Dana-Farber uh, to work with Stephen Burakoff, who at the time was the, the head of pediatric oncology at the Dana-Farber. And that was at the same time that Millennium was founded. And one day I'm in the lab and there is somebody else in the lab that's looking for jobs and he gets an offer to join Millennium but he he accepted an academic position and he turned turned to me and said they want to uh, hire someone in signal transduction and I don't know anyone else and I said well why don't you send my resume and see what happens I was just <laughs> starting my postdoc and he sent my resume and they called me in and making a long story short I got the position and uh, it was amazing because I joined Millennium just before the company. Uh, went public and all of that. And I have to say that journey at Millennium was just fantastic. How many, how many employees did they have in those days? Uh, I think 150. We oh. were just in a floor and a half at 640 Memorial Drive. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and this is before like the... Um the whole genomics <laughs> craze that you, you were there through the, the glory days, you know, the, the, the wild ups and downs. I was, I was there. I mean, remember the genome, I think was uh, end of 99, beginning of 2000. I have a lot of patents uh, with my team, you know, cloning a gazillion genes at that time. Remember we filed patents every time we cloned the gene. Um, so yeah, we participated on that. It was an amazing time. 
So um, how, what years were you there at Millennium? I was at Millennium from 96 to 2005. Okay. So this is like, it sounds like that, that kind of ideal experience for your, your beginning as an industry scientist, you're working on um, interesting projects. Uh, it's, it's fast paced. It's intense. Lots of smart colleagues. I mean, a lot of people you know, really trace their career journeys to that millennium experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you, how, how did you uh, end up deciding then in 05 that it was time to move on and do something different? I think because I caught the entrepreneur bug, I was really interested in, um, in basically seeing what it took to start a company from scratch. And because was not only about the science, but also the kind of culture that you wanted to create in a company. And um, and so when I left Millennium in 2005 was to start my first company, which is Aileron Therapeutics. So that was a company based on this staple peptide technology from Greg Verdine's lab at Harvard. And um, and initially, I was I was sort of leading the science there. I was the VP of research. It was me and another person, Hugh Nash and Greg, and and then uh, with the um, Apple Tree partners, Seth Harrison and Joe Yunchik. And then we took the company into you know in you know created a whole company around that staple peptide technology. And it was fascinating for me to see how we could go from a blank sheet of paper and an idea, you know, into creating an organization, a culture, you know, a, a product, etc. And the technology itself, just real briefly, I mean, the, the, what was exciting about that? I love the idea of um, basically uh, modulating protein-protein interactions. So one of the things that I, I remember at Millennium, I was a bit frustrated, is that there was no way at a time that we could block protein-protein interaction. Going back to my signal transduction days, that's how this cells communicate internally. So what was amazing about the staple peptides, which I still think is an amazing technology, and Greg actually started another company on it called FOG, is that um, we take the... the Basically, the alpha helical uh, peptide that usually is involved in the interaction between two proteins, and you create this staple, and now these peptides, you can inject them, and they can get into cells, because, you know, proteins usually don't get into cells. And what was magic about these staple peptides is now that they could get into cells and basically modulate protein-protein interaction. Uh the, the issue at the time is that this was a new technology and very much like antibodies. There were a lot of things we did not know about that. And when you're developing a new technology, I think that you need uh, several groups to be thinking about it and how you're going to mitigate the challenges and the hurdles that appear. And I think that Aileron's strategy was to basically own the space but then other people were not allowed to jump into the space. And I think that the progress is, became, was, it became slower, you know, than expected because of that. What was one of the key hurdles? Was it delivery or something else? Delivery. Definitely delivery. Okay. Well, okay. So you were there at Aileron for how long? I was at Aileron for four years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And what came next? So then I left Aileron and I actually consulted for Third Rock Ventures for about four months. I had the opportunity to work with Kevin Starr and also with uh, Luther Taglia in one of their projects. And I was there for four months. And then Vicky Sato introduced me to Bruce Booth. And Bruce was starting a company. Um, at the time, was a project called Project Troubled Water. And that company became Nimbus. Yeah. So tell me more about this. This was a very important chapter in your career, obviously. It was. It was. So um, uh, uh, I went to talk to Bruce um, and he said to me, so, you know, I don't understand. So remember, this is 2010. OK, 2000, end of 2009, uh, beginning of 2010. And, um, you know, there is no public market for biotech companies. So investors are kind of scrambling to figure out how they are going to get a return on their investment. So all the investments are illiquid at the time. And the only thing that you could, um, to create liquidity, they had to basically sell the company. So we had this problem that uh, you would build a company, build a team, create a technology, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, the, you would exit through an M&A and all that that you built was going to be lost because the only thing that a former company would be interested in was on the key asset. And then you would lose the team and so on. And, and Bruce was really interested in creating a new model um, of biotech where you could actually sell the asset, okay, but keep the team, keep the technology, keep everything that you had built. Uh, and the other piece of it is that everything always took so long and everything was so expensive. So why can't we do it in a different way? And in a conversation he was having with Rami Farid at the time, president of Schrodinger, they concocted this idea of using computational chemistry to drive the drug discovery process. So Nimbus was created to do three things. First was basically better, cheaper, and faster small molecule drugs that we were going to design using computational chemistry. The second piece was uh, that we're not going to build labs that's not going to be bricks and mortar. Everything was going to be done uh, through externalization, which by itself was an experiment at the time. Correct? CROs were just starting to do that. And the third piece was the LLC structure that allowed for uh, the sale of the asset without having to dispose of the whole company. And that was the experiment. And the experiment worked really well. We were able to use computational chemistry to drive the drug discovery process in this uh, strategic partnership with Schrodinger. We were able to externalize the, all the science. Nimbus never had labs and still does not have labs. Everything is being done through CROs and academic collaborations. And the third piece is the LLC structure that worked extremely well for Nimbus. Yeah, and so I was there, can, let, yeah. can you say a little bit about um, what about this novel structure? And it was novel at the time, and it's since been copied by others. What about it really appealed to you? Because co coming from your previous stops, uh, the team seemed really important, the culture mm -hmm. you mentioned. Uh, but then there were also these th these things about, um, you know, trying out a new technology. So for me, it was about the team and the culture. 
And, and every time that you build a technology that you didn't have to basically dispose of it. So what I loved about the LLC structure was exactly that, that I would only sell the asset, but that I would keep the team and the technology in place. So think about Nimbus. So when we sold the, the ACC program to Gilead, which is called Nimbus Apollo, uh, Gilead got the asset but not the people, not the technology. Nimbus remains intact. I still remember after the deal, we went back and it was business as usual. We were working on other programs. It never changed the, uh, the fabric of the company, correct? So that's why it was so important for me. It's a little bit like the, the analogy to a band, right? You know, you turn out a hit album and, uh, That's exactly you know, right. you, you, you maybe, maybe you're a one hit wonder, <laughs> but uh, sometimes, you know, you've got a good band, chemistry, people get along, uh, you Correct. can turn out a second or a third. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and who were the key people that, that you were really kind of gelling with there at Nimbus and, and able to, you know, keep doing the things you enjoy doing? Absolutely. So first of all, I have to give a lot of credit to Bruce and Rami. You know, they were really the people, they're the founders of the company. They're the ones that, that came up with the idea and the foundation of the company. So credit where credit is due. Um, the other people in the beginning were Jonathan Montague. Uh, so Jonathan and I were the two people in an office and a blank sheet of paper and how are you going to do this? Because one thing is to have the vision. The other thing is to translate the vision into execution, correct? Okay, we're going to do these three things, but how are we going to do these three things? Uh, so that was very important. I think that the, the other person, again, that was very important in the beginning was Vicky Sato. She was also a board member. Um, and she was the one who actually put a lot of this together and, and helped me to bring the team together. So you're going to see that Vicky appears in my life over and over and over again. Um, <laughs> I, I did not realize you were this close to Vicky, um, but um, yeah. <laughs> it's clearly important. Like uh, that, that was an important relationship early on. Um, uh, and continues to be, continues to be. It's uh, it's amazing. It's like when you people talk about mentors and sponsors. You know, I would say that uh, Vicky played very much that role for me. But um, but so Jonathan Montague, uh, Vicky, the other person who was very important uh, was Jerry Harriman, who is actually the inventor of the ACC inhibitor. Um, Wes Weslin, who basically did all the preclinical development and early translation in the company. And of course, last but not least, the Nicholson and Jab Kuiper, who arrived in the company in 2014, just before we filed our first IND. And I think with Don and Jab joining, you know, it totally transformed the company. Okay. Can you talk just a little bit about the, um, the, the biology? There was this project Troubled Water, um, and yes. that inspired the name for Nimbus. But then yes. there was this computational chemistry piece where, where how, what were you really using the, the computing power to do? So the computational chemistry was all done at Schrodinger. Remember that Nimbus was a strategic partnership with Schrodinger, and Schrodinger is sort of the premier company in computational chemistry. And we were using the computing power initially. Um, we utilized a technology called WaterMap 
hence the name Project Troubled Water. And what, what WaterMap did, and which was unique and revolutionary at the time, is that it could map the water molecules that were in the binding sites. And what people don't appreciate, you know, when a drug binds to its receptor, that binding site is occupied by water. So the molecule has to displace the water. And sometimes waters get trapped on this binding sites and they became they become very unhappy or troubled. So what WaterMap did was to find those waters and then basically we used the computer to generate compounds that could either displace or replace the waters. And that increased the affinity of compounds to the target. The other thing that knowing this, this roadmap to the waters in the target is that you could use that to increase the selectivity of your compound against your specific target. So that was very useful, for example, for kinases, because kinases are very similar to each other, correct? Especially if you go after the active site. But the water map of the kinases are different. So we could use that information to say, okay, I can have a molecule that will displace this water in kinase one, but not in kinase two. Uh, so that was the first thing we used it for. The other piece is that as they continue to to develop their technology. So this is Schrodinger together with us. So we generated all the data that Schrodinger put back into their models is Schrodinger basically developed uh, a better force field and then they develop, develop continue to develop or, or improve a technology called free energy perturbation. And that was a game changer. Now we could actually make molecules that were much more potent and much more selective, much faster than we did before. So. That's what we use the computing power for to help us to one identify the pro the, the to identify the the molecules or the small molecules that we're interested in, and also to optimize those molecules. And then we start using it to also optimize not only the binding affinity or selectivity, but also optimizing the drug-like properties. If you like listening to the Long Run podcast, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing and from an outstanding cast of contributing writers such as Otello Stampacha, Ruth Etzioni, Alex Harding, Annie Iserson, David Shaywitz, and more. It's a bargain at $149 a year for an individual to subscribe. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to show your support today. And are you a fan of the Long Run Podcast? Trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with a high-powered group of entrepreneurs and venture investors who listen to this show? My business representative, Stephanie Barnes, can tell you about sponsorship opportunities. Tell me about your company first in a brief email. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. How did this relate with conventional medicinal chemistry. So, I mean, were you doing kind of like the, the usual high throughput screens, small molecules against these kinases no. or ACC or, or no. and then optimizing with the computers or, or like starting like de novo scratch uh, with the computer? So, yeah. So what we did actually, we use a structure-based drug design. Okay. And in the case of ACC, the only thing we knew about it is that there was a binding site and there was a microcycle or a natural product that bound to it called sorafen. 
So we basically use that knowledge to do what we call the virtual screen. So instead of doing a high throughput screen where you have to express the protein and develop a biochemical assay or a binding assay and all of that, we did everything in silico using the computer. And once we identified the hits, then we either ordered these hits because they came from libraries or we had to synthesize them and then show through a biochemical assay or a binding assay that the hits actually inhibited or bound to the, to the target of interest. And, and at Nimbus, we never, ever ran a high throughput screening. So it was all done through this kind of virtual screen and then structure-based drug design. And um, it, this uh, actually worked. I mean, you, you, it you came really up well. with, a, with a program, the ACC target for NASH, yeah. which was sold to Gilead, and then did it again with uh, TIC2 and Sting antagonists that uh, were, were, were sold off to Celgene. Again, and well, now, yeah, and now keeping they have the whole the, band together. <laughs> well, keeping the whole band. Well, some of our slacks is done, but still, you keep the band together or part of the band. But the fabric is the same, correct? So the the principles remain the same, and that is fantastic. The company is is uh, ten years old, and and the principles remain the same. Yeah. And uh, you know, I could ask Bruce this question, but I mean. Presumably, this um, didn't take as long or as much money to develop, you know, X number of drugs. So it's working from a venture capital perspective. Absolutely. You should ask Bruce that question, but I can tell you that is that is correct. He can give you the precise numbers. Yeah. Well, okay. So you were there, I think, about eight years, right? And you're chief scientific officer from beginning to end. Correct. So um, this is, I mean, obviously, you got a lot of accomplishments uh, you can look back and be proud on. Uh, again, um, what was uh, whispering in your ear and saying, you know, time to do something different? I love company creation. What can I say? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, so there was that time at Nimbus where everything was working and everything, you know, we had a a good team in place. We were making progress. We had, we were becoming a, a clinical stage company, and and the technology we we're using was very mature at this point. You know, not in the beginning, but at this point was quite mature. And then I became really interested in figuring out if there were other technologies that we could bring to bear. And one of the areas I became very interested in was machine learning. And I wanted to see if we could actually bring that into Nimbus, but it's always that kind of uh, tension, correct? Uh, you can bring more things, but, you know, why to change the team that's winning right now and so on and so on. And so I decided that it was time for me to leave and explore um, a, the, a different world and, and try to learn more from sort of the computational side of the story, you know, and, um, and I remember that, so, so that had nothing to do with what I'm doing right now, correct? So I leave Nimbus and said, oh, okay, I'm going to figure out how to get myself uh, into machine learning, and I think machine learning is going to change the world, and that's what I want to do, so I call, um, so basically Krishna and I get together for dinner, and we decided yeah, maybe we can do something together. And Krishna, Krishna Yeshwant of GB. Yeah, Krishna, correct. Uh, 
And then uh, Krishna says, okay, maybe you should come in as an entrepreneur in residence. And I said, great idea. <laughs> so, um, so it took about eight to nine months until I, you know, from the time I left Nimbus until I started uh, at GV. And uh, in the meantime, uh, I started learning more about... No, no wait a second, Rosanna. This yeah. is like, I mean, you left, you didn't have a job per se. No. You, you had no. an idea of something that you wanted to explore. I mean, that's something not a lot of people do. What what gave oh. you the, the confidence <laughs> or the feeling that that's that's what you wanted the the way you wanted to do it? Uh, I, um, I think that uh, you know I was in a stage of my career that I could take that jump. Okay, um, I felt that uh, that I needed the space to do that. You know, I needed the space. I need the free space, the mental space. I couldn't do that having a full-time job and at the same time trying to explore a completely new area of science. So that's that's why I love and there was I had no plans of starting another company right away or doing anything right away. I just wanted the mental space. To it sounds like almost like you gave yourself a sabbatical. That's exactly right. Well, my father said I was unemployed. My mother said I was in a sabbatical. <laughs> he couldn't get his head around it. What? You left a very good job to do what? <laughs> and you you yeah, assured no, them but, that you, you weren't going to stay unemployed forever. Yeah, no, but, but my father, that's it. My father said, you are unemployed. And my mother, no, you're taking a sabbatical to figure out what you want to do next. And, you know, it was... One of I highly recommend it to people that can do that because it really gives you the mental space, you know, to be able to explore other areas. And as I said, I had this idea that I really wanted to get into machine learning. And I started talking to a lot of people in the field and learning more about it. And this was about two years, two and a half years ago. And what I found out is that at that point in time, not today, but at that point in time, that that things were still too... Um, immature in machine learning for me to really jump into it, especially because I'm not a machine learning person, correct? I'm a biologist by training. I know how to integrate technologies into drug discovery, but I'm not the sort of the main expert on that. And there were some great people already in the field like Daphne Kohler and so on. And I said, okay, uh, these people will figure out how to get machine learning to where it needs to go. Uh, before it's going to be fully uh, appreciated. Same thing happened with computational chemistry. Think about it. It took 30 years for computational chemistry to get to what I call the tipping point, where computational chemistry can could be really used effectively in drug discovery. I think with machine learning, this is going to be a much faster process. You know, I think people are already showing that. But again, two and a half years ago, it was not at that tipping point, And you really need the domain experts to push that. I think you're raising an important point here because like, yes, you're, you're not the machine learning expert, but um, nobody's an expert at everything. I mean, this is a team sport and absolutely, uh, you, you do have the training in biology, which informs like you, you, you get steeped in what are the key problems and Correct. what are, what are we really trying to use the technology for and what can it really help us answer? And that's often a really good place to start from. Uh, so what were you thinking that machine learning could really be helpful? What could it really solve? 
So several things. So for example, uh, I have been talking about computational chemistry, correct? And one of the things about computational chemistry is that it's a wonderful tool. You know, it can expedite the drug discovery process, but by itself is not the be all and all. And you really have to integrate computational chemistry with medicinal chemistry. I think this was one of the questions you had before. You know, I, I think that the magic that we created at Nimbus was that, that we were able to integrate these two disciplines. But the, the chemistry space is so vast, so vast. That, that humans um, cannot comprehend at all. And we need really computers to do that. But just using physics-based approaches, that's not enough, you know? So if you think about overlaying the machine learning on top of what we had created with the computational, integrating computational chemistry, medicinal chemistry, that could create a really powerful, you know, space where you could... Um, answer a lot of the questions that are still unanswerable in, in sort of in chemistry space. We haven't explored it to its uh, to, to fully, you know. It still has a lot of space that it's left out just because we can't get there. So that's how I thought about machine learning, one, to address that chemistry space. The other piece of machine learning that can be used is about it's on uh, target discovery, correct, and biomarker discovery. So one of the things uh, that we still don't do super well is, you know, it's to figure out what are going to be the best targets. What are the, 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 the ones that I, if I make a drug against this particular target, you know, it's going to have a biological effect. And people have been trying that for years with pathway analysis and bioinformatics and all things, but none of them have the enough computing power to do what needs to be done. And again, machine learning could do that. Um, the third piece is actually the understanding when you do a lot of experiments, you know, and you perturb the environment. How does everything pieces together? So that's where I thought that, um, that and, and I still believe that once that, and, and I, I'm, I'm basically putting everything under the umbrella of machine learning, correct, deep learning, etc. But once you have that to a point where you have digested all the data and you have the computing power to do this, it, you know, you may be able to get the human out of the picture and you're going to be able to say to the computer, I want to see this particular target in this disease with this thing. And the computer may be able to tell you what's going to be the best way to do it and actually <laughs> tell you how to develop a drug against it. We're not that, there yet. I was going to say that sounds pretty far out, um, but I'm, I'm <laughs> interested that you, you brought up the target discovery part because, yeah. you know, this is a classic shortage in the industry and, and you see it in things like when a good one comes up, like PD-1 or CD-19, like how many resources flood into that? Correct. Uh, it's because there's just not, you know, a thousand great targets laying around that people are, are hammering away at. <clears throat> so and think how many years it takes to discover these targets. How many years? How many, you know, and the kind of biological insights that you have to have to do that. And if a machine could start making the connections, you could get to them faster. So you you looked at this space, you're learning a lot for about two years or so, you say. What, what, what uh, was no, changing? actually, it was a little bit less. So I did that for about six months. <laughs> okay. And then I got interested in the repeatome. 
okay, well, let's talk about the repeat ohm because, yeah. you know, well, first of all, like the, the whole omics language, isn't it wonderful? Like you can just attach that <laughs> suffix onto anything yes. <laughs> and, yes. and systematize. It's like these long repeats, CGTA, yeah. CGTA. It looks like the yeah. most boring thing in the world. Like what could yes. possibly of be of interest in there? Absolutely. But, the, but yet you, you look at this and, and what, what stirred your interest in the repeat ohm? So I knew nothing about it. Correct. Um, uh, and again, starts with people. Look, I think that that's the key thing. So I met uh, David Tang, who then became my scientific founder, co-founder. <laughs> and, um, and David has been working on this space for the past uh, decade. And he said, did you know that half of our genome is comprised of these repeats and that a lot of it is comprised of human endogenous retroviruses? And I go, come again? I didn't even know that, you know, that we had all these retroviruses, viruses basically embedded in our genome. And he says to me, and you know, uh, this repeat, so we call them repeats, uh, they are dormant uh, during, you know, our lives um, unless the cells become sick. And then once the cells become sick, either because they age or because there is an infection or neurodegeneration or cancer, you know, these repeats are released. And a lot of these repeats, the RNA of these repeats, they look like viral RNA. And they go on to stimulate our innate immune response. And I was like, huh, very interesting. So think about it. So we have inside our bodies... Uh, Things that look like viruses, because they were viruses once in a lifetime, you know, and they have integrated in our genomes through evolution. And now this sequence of this repeats, you know, become part of our first responders, if you will. Correct? The cells are sick. We need to tell the organism that the cells are sick. What better way to do that than to use the same machinery that evolution has given us to fight viruses. So, so it's so still it's still non-coding um, DNA. Some are coding. Oh, so are this coding. is some are coding. So this is so the, there's coding and non-coding repeats. That's what people get confused because number one, not all repeats are created equal. So there are different types of repeats. Correct. So people know about the lines and the signs and the alos. They also know about the, the triplets, correct? This uh, triplet expansion diseases where you have, you know, uh, three-letter repeats. You know? And then you have the human endogenous retroviruses, which are also repeats. Is anything that's present in your genome hundred that you have hundreds of copies and also things that have been transposed in our genome and you have like small pieces of it. So for example, if you look at human endogenous retroviruses, what you see a lot of it is just like the long terminal repeats, but the provirus piece of it has already been um uh, uh deleted. Okay. Or you can have hundreds of copies of the provirus. And if you have those copies, these copies actually have coding RNA. They code for envelope protein. They code for 
uh, polymerase, they code for integrase protease. You know, it's like a virus. So these are, would, would you call these coding regions genes? They are genes. And so the way I have been talking about this is that these are repeat encoded genes or targets. You know, some of them could become targets. So people have been working on this for a while. I mean, so a lot of people actually have been working on the envelope. So the human endogenous retroviruses envelope, because for a long time, it has been appreciated that this envelope could be involved in certain, um, I, I will give you an example, in certain uh, uh, physiological events and also in certain types of uh, pathology. So let me give you an example of physiology. So one of these endogenous retroviruses produces an envelope protein called syncytin. And that protein is responsible for placenta formation. So you could imagine that without this retrovirus integrating into our genome, if you will, mammals may never exist because it wouldn't have a protein that would induce placenta formation. And if you delete this endogenous retrovirus in mice, basically they can't reproduce. So there is a very important function in reproduction. Okay, and so because a protein is being produced, um, it's, it's druggable one way or Correct. another, small molecule or, or, or protein. Antibodies, exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and, but these are not, you know, classic uh, targets that we've thought of that, that would be in the exome, say, of, you know, the 2% of the genome that we know correct. is coding for correct. genes. This is outside of that. Correct. That is correct. Okay. <clears throat> but so we're, you're, you're discovering targets. And, and, yes. and then and interrogating those and saying, and, well, and, you know. And, and, and just one more thing that I want to say. Some of them are proteins. Some are not. Some are just RNAs, non-coding RNAs that we're interested in. Some of those okay. can be involved in regulatory uh, functions, right? Correct. They could be involved in regulatory functions. They could, yes. Yes. Okay. So you got a couple different types of targets and um, you're familiar with the whole pharmacological toolkit. Like there's a lot of different kinds of interventions that you could make that we, to go yes. against you know, the, the type of target that that's it best is suited to silence or, or, or interact with. Um, so, but boy, this, this sounds awfully early. I, I can imagine like a lot, <laughs> a lot of entrepreneurs and VCs might be listening to this and saying, boy, this, this sounds kind of academic. Like, yes. in fact, I mean, I know GSK did a, an academic institute that it sponsors called Altius that's supposed to be, you know, doing kind of drug discovery kind of related things on yes. non-coding DNA. I don't know. Is that analogous to what you're doing or um, or how, what? maybe a different question? How is this a company? So we actually have identified repeating coded targets. OK, these are proteins that encode enzymatic functions that we know how to drug. So therefore, uh, Rome is a, right now a small molecule focused company. We know the target. We know how we want to drug the target. There is a roadmap to drug that particular target. Actually, it's a couple of targets, correct? And 
And these are the ones that we're taking forward uh, are part of our drug discovery programs. And hopefully we will have a development candidate a couple of years from now. So it is not as early as people think. Okay. Okay. So you've got that piece. Are you identifying yes. the target? Oh, we have the targets already. We, we yeah, know yeah, yeah, but are, are you are you identifying them publicly? Not yet. No. Okay. So, and then we don't really know. You're not saying what the indication is, or or, or can you speak broadly? Like, is it so? Sure. Uh, immunity? I can speak broadly. So the so the indications are going to be epithelial derived tumors that actually have right high repeat. So the the thing that we're characterizing is that what types of tumors are going to respond to that type of intervention. And what we are finding out is that tumors that have uh, high, um, that express certain types of repeats highly are going to be more responsive to this type of intervention. So not only we are creating a new drug, we are also identifying the tumors that are going to be sensitive to that particular drug. Okay, so it's a bit so of a precision a medicine kind Correct. of uh, Correct. So instead of being, yeah, so instead of being genetic driven, so what, so the other thing that you can say, oh, genetics drive it, and if you have a mutation and you have a driver mutation, so we don't have that. But what is really cool about repeating coded targets, and I'm going to repeat that, is that these repeats are dormant in healthy cells, okay? They only become activated in sick cells, so even the targets are only present in six cells. So you can imagine that whatever drug you have against this particular target, it's going only to have an effect on the cells that express it, and it's going to spare the normal tissue. Okay, okay. So and maybe even that gives though you some, it's not exactly. Some dosing flexibility, perhaps. Correct. You know, you, mm-hmm. Okay. And, and again, because you can recognize the tissues, you know which, which tumors will respond to it and which tumors will not respond to it. Okay, so you've got a couple of, of uh, targets here that are m- more mature, a little further down the road of, mm-hmm. of toward development, a couple years away, you're saying, from, from the clinic? No, not a couple of years from the clinic. <laughs> I okay. don't want to make claims off uh, timelines. Okay. What I said is a couple of years from development candidate. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. And, okay. And, yeah. Okay. But, and then on the other side, you're, you've got a, a more discovery-based kind of yes. approach? which is more platform, is our platform, which is basically uh, we want to harness the whole repitome. As I said, there are a couple of targets that are sort of the low-hanging fruits. We understand how to drug them. We understand how what indications we're going to go after. But there is a lot of other things in there, and this is what we are mining right now and identifying. Okay, okay. So you got a 50 million Series A from in spring of uh, 2000. Uh, and, and you're building this company up in, in the uh, pandemic times. In, in the spring of 2020, you mean? Yeah, spring of 2020. So, I mean, <laughs> spring of 2000 would be a long oh, time ago. Oh, did I say 2000? Sorry. You um, did. <laughs> so it's, it's pandemic times. And yes. so what's it been like to manage through that? Look, uh, uh, you know, it's not business as usual, correct? Uh, it's hard enough to start a company in the best of times. It's, it's harder to start a company during the pandemic. I have to say, however, that people have figured out how to manage, correct, uh, their work 
during the pandemic. So a few things that I have to say. Um, we had the lockdown in Massachusetts. So for a, for a couple of months, we could not work here in the lab here. However, we do have part of our work externalized. So we do work with contract research organizations like everyone else. And the CROs in Europe and China figure out how to, I mean, China was locked down first, then Europe, then the United States. So somehow you manage that. And I have to say that even during the pandemic, um, the, the productivity has been around 70 to 80 percent. So you figure it out, you know, how to manage that. But I think that the, the, the most, um, I think that the impact I'm seeing the most is on how we communicate. You have to be much more deliberate and intentional in your communication. And then the other piece of it is that there is no time to really socialize. I know that we try all kinds of things. We have happy hour, we have this, we have that. But it's all done by Zoom, correct? It's not yeah. the same thing as when you're in person. So I, I, I think we will feel the impact of that in the in, you know, next year or the, in the next few months, years to come. I don't know. There is, there is going to be an impact. Because that socialization piece that's so important to create a new company, a new culture, you know, is much harder. Right yeah, it's now. how you build trust with your colleagues. You know, blowing Very off steam hard. on Friday afternoon after Correct. a long week, you get a beer and you talk about what happened in the lab. <laughs> Correct. Correct. And that is very hard to do. Very hard to do. Um, now, you're also a first time CEO here mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and a woman. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, how has that adjustment been for you? Um, have you had to change some of, like, the way you operate, uh, knowing that, you know, people just look at you different now that you're the CEO? <laughs> I think that's the biggest challenge, you know, is that you, you, you're just, you're the same person, you know, you, you, you haven't changed as a person, but people see you different. And, uh, and I, I think this is one of the things that I'm still adapting to, uh, because I, as you can say, I'm a very friendly, you know, warm person. I'm from Rio, as we, we already discussed. Uh, I come from a different culture. I come from a culture that hugs people, kisses people, you know. There is no difference. Hierarchy is not a big thing. And, and now I'm the CEO of this company, and people, you know, see me in a position of authority. Not that, you know, I didn't have that before, but it was, I had authority over my area of expertise, correct? Now I have authority over the whole company. And um, and as a woman, you have to pay more attention because you also held a different, um, how would you say, uh, different standard, correct? Uh, if you, if you are more, assertive, you know, people think that you're in a bad mood or you're being emotional. Um, if you are, you know, I hate those stereotypes, Luke, but that's yeah. what ends up happening. It's it's true. Women are seen different than men. You know, women are, the way you have to operate is very different. You have to be more careful. Well, I suppose, you know, picking up cues from the boss's mood, I mean, that that's true for men and women. But it um, it's different in the pandemic, right? Where you know you're not walking down the hall and people can keep 
pick up on whether you've had a bad day talking to your investors or something like that. They don't really see you that way. Correct. Um, but, you know, it, this reminds me a little bit of something Aoife Brennan of Synlogic said on one of my episodes where I don't know if you know her, but I she, do. She, she said that, um, you know, before she would, you know, float ideas in a meeting, mm-hmm. just kind of like spitballing concepts. And she didn't realize that when she became the CEO, people take them as kind of like marching orders and they'll start working on something. And she's like, well, wait a minute. I didn't <laughs> I didn't Correct. want you to drop what you were doing. I, I just I was, you know, bouncing around ideas. And so she she had to just think more carefully about what it was that she really wanted to say in that meeting. I think that's the biggest change. You're no longer one of the, you know, you're part of the team, but you're not really part of the team. You know what I mean? Um it's a more it, it you you feel more lonely in a way, you know. Um, you you really have to pay attention, as you've said. You have to pay attention what you say, how you behave. You know, people are looking up to you. You have more responsibility. You have to answer to the board. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, it's uh, it's different. It's different. Have you found a, a group of fellow CEOs who you yes. can talk to? Yes, yes. I have a yeah. I have many friends that have made the transition and others who have been ahead and I, I yes, I can reach out to them anytime. And there is this amazing CEO forum that has been created now in Boston as part of the COVID response and we'll continue to meet. Yes. That has been amazing. And the other thing I'm, I'm going to say is that the number of uh, female CEOs are definitely increasing. You know, uh, 10 years ago, you may have a handful of female CEOs. And I think that right now you have many more. And you can reach out to them and talk to them about what are the challenges, what are what they have done to address them and you know, because we are we are all going through very similar um, experiences with our teams and boards, etc. You got any words of advice for younger women out there who might think, you know, maybe someday I can become a CEO? Um, my word of advice is believe in yourself. Don't let people tell you that you cannot do it. You know, believe in yourself. And if there is a wall in front of you, figure out a way to climb it, go around it, under it, through it, whatever it is. Don't let people tell you not to do it. Well, it doesn't sound like uh, it sounds like you're actually enjoying this this move. I mean, adjusting like everybody to a new. Yes. A new and, role. I, and I think that adjusting it during the pandemic, it's very hard. Because for the same reasons we we're just discussing a few minutes ago, you know, how do you build trust? And I am lucky because many of my current team have, they have worked with me for the past few years. So some of the people who are currently at Rome were with me at Nimbus. Yeah. So you get to rely on those longstanding Absolutely. trusting relationships. Uh, Absolutely. I, I think that uh, everybody has to lean on those people and those relationships in this time. and. You know, it's a little harder to form the new ones, um, but that time will come too. Correct. Correct. But I'm very energized. So it hasn't stopped me from being energized and focused and let's go and change the world. Rosanna Capeller, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you very much, Luke. 
Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.